If you would, pray with me again. God of all glory and grace, we thank you. We thank you and we praise you for who you are, for all that you have done, and for all that you promised to do. Thank you for letting us gather here to worship you. And God, I pray, even as I have all week, that you will help me now again to depend on you. I pray that the truth of your word will be clear and compelling. And Father, I pray for all of us gathered that we will listen well to the message that arises from the text of your word and to apply it with submissive and open hearts. In Christ's name we ask, amen. I don't doubt that many of you have begun your Christmas shopping, and in the process of your Christmas shopping to buy gifts for others, you have likely ordered something online, and you're you, you, maybe you had to wait or you're still excitedly waiting for that thing to arrive because you're excited to get to give this gift to someone. And so you're in this phase of you have ordered it and you're still waiting on the arrival of this package. When we come to our text in Matthew chapter 1, we see the people of Israel waiting on something that God had promised. And not waiting briefly, but waiting for quite some time. Now, as we read together through the text of Matthew 1, 18 to 25, I'm going to have some brief comments to make sure that we're clear about some of the details so that we know we're rightly understanding the text. And then I want to sharpen our focus for today on the unique arrival of this long-awaited promise. Read with me Matthew chapter 1, first verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Some of you have no doubt heard this before, but to be betrothed in their culture was a little more uh, serious and legally binding than our engagements are today in our culture. And although they had not yet come together for the wedding and the consummation of their marriage, this engagement was then a legally binding one. So breaking it would require a legal divorce. And we'll see that as we continue reading. You also see in this verse that the text says she was found to be with child. Based on Luke's account of the timing of the revelation to Mary and then her visit to her relative Elizabeth, It may be that Mary is about four months pregnant now. Imagine the shock to Joseph and what he must have imagined about her unfaithfulness to their betrothal. But let's continue, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, this would require legal action to terminate the engagement, the betrothal. Since Joseph, the text says, was a just or an upright man, he deemed it necessary uh, that he divorce her due to the perceived infidelity. 
But he wanted to do so quietly out of compassion and kindness that she should experience less shame. And verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for what for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Addressing Joseph as son of David would give weight to the significance of what is taking place and also confirm the importance of what he's being told to do. For a second time, we hear this emphasis of conception by the Holy Spirit, and it must not be overlooked. Not only is it miraculous, beyond God's own norms for nature, which is an important emphasis in the nativity narratives, the uniqueness of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, but it is critical to confirming for Joseph that he will not be defiling himself by taking Mary as his wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She has not been unfaithful. In fact, this is the express will of God that he do so, and, and it has ramifications for how God is fulfilling his promise made to Israel and through Israel. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Joseph is instructed to give this child, Jesus, is the Greek name Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua or Yehoshua, Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. What an appropriate name for God sending his own son into the world to save his people from their sins. Yesu. Yeshua, it is God who saves. Verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds, which means God with us. This statement from Matthew in quotation from Isaiah 7.14 is, is central to his theme of fulfillment, so we're going to come back to that with further explanation. That's going to be one of our primary emphases this morning. Notice now how this brief episode about the birth of the Christ closes with Joseph's obedient response, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's obedience that arises from a faith in God who keeps his promises. Joseph's obedience arises from a faith in God who keeps his promises. This will be a key component of our application for today, faith and obedience. So this morning, I want us to ask two questions that you probably know we really ought to ask of every text of God's word that we study. What is the author explaining that he intends to make sure that we know? And how should we apply that to a right response to God? So in the birth account, in the nativity narrative, what does Matthew want us to know? Doctrinally, we should understand that Matthew is indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes this gospel account so that what we receive is revelation from God. 
But such doesn't remove the human author from the equation. So it's still right for us to say, what does Matthew want us to know? Or, or we might also say another way, what is the Holy Spirit communicating through Matthew? What does Matthew want the reader to comprehend, understand, to see with the eyes of faith? Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah of God's promise. Matthew does, in order to, to show you that Jesus is the Christ, he demonstrates how Jesus fulfills the promise that God had made in his covenants. He demonstrates how how Jesus is the fulfillment of specific predictions, specific prophecies in the Old Testament, and even how Jesus is the fulfillment of of types or or patterns established in the Old Testament scriptures. Just consider first how Matthew begins this account. He says in verse 1 that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word Christ, calling Jesus the Christ, bears, of course, great significance, as it is the Greek translation for the Hebrew term Mashiach, anointed. The Jews were awaiting the Messiah, God's anointed one, with great expectation of of being freed from subjugation from their enemies and of reestablishing the throne in Jerusalem and the great kingdom of Israel. The genealogy that that follows then is, is important because it proves the pedigree of Jesus, to be the fulfillment of God's promises made in his covenant with David and in his covenant with Abraham. That Jesus was a direct descendant of David would mean that he could be the rightful legal heir to the throne of David. Because God promised to David that the anointed one, who would be the permanent king, would come from his lineage. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. And this is a fulfillment coming almost a thousand years after the promise God made to David. And that Jesus descended from Abraham means that he can be the rightful legal heir to God's covenant with Abraham, which not only established Israel as God's chosen people and gave them certain land possession expectations, but the covenant also promised that through Abraham's seed, the whole world would be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. More than 2,000 years after the promise was made. And I was reminded this morning as I was reviewing the words of the Apostle Peter when he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9, but when you're concerned in this present age about the Lord being slow to keep his promise, to the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. <laughs> a thousand years from David, or and two thousand years removed from Abraham to the receiving of this promise. So Matthew shows that Jesus is the Christ who fulfills the covenant promises made to both Abraham and to David. We see further in our text for today and beyond in Matthew and in the New Testament that this Jesus fulfills scriptural prophecy, both specific predictions and typological patterns. When we come to verse 22 that we read, we should pay close attention to the word fulfill and to the phrase associated with it. 
The Greek word here used that we translate as fulfill means to accomplish thoroughly and entirely with the idea of uh, understood as if filling a container completely. Can you picture that? Fulfill, to fill the container completely. And this first instance quotes Isaiah 7.14 in which there would have been a kind of a kind of fulfillment first in the nearer context of the prophecy, but then Jesus Christ becomes a deeper and more complete fulfillment of such prediction. Isaiah's prophecy found ultimate fulfillment not only in Christ's literal virgin birth, but also in his nature as Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew will Repeat this many times, often with the same formula, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And although Matthew does this throughout his gospel account, it is by no means unique to Matthew. It's a common feature of of all four gospels and of the New Testament as a whole that Jesus fulfills Old Testament promise, prediction, and pattern, so fulfilling God's plan. Jesus is the Christ and not for the nation of Israel only, but for the whole world. In the near context, Matthew emphasizes prophetic fulfillment again, this time in a different way, without that phrase. As the Magi from the east search for the child, and they're asking around for him everywhere in Jerusalem. Out of concern, Herod inquires of the experts in the scriptures, and so he finds out that there is a prophecy from Micah 5.2 that Messianic expectations marks Bethlehem as the place where the Messiah was to be born. But because of Herod's wicked intent, the evil in his heart, God then has to warn the Magi in a dream to return another way home, Matthew 2.12. And then he warns Joseph in another dream to flee with the child to Egypt in verse 13 of chapter 2. Now, again, as I'm pointing out to you, three more times in chapter 2, Matthew will show God doing with Jesus, with Jesus, excuse me, that which is the greater fulfillment of former patterns or types, we call them, theologically. Just as God would refer metaphorically to Israel as his son in bringing them up out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, so now God brings his literal son, Jesus, the Christ, back out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son, from Hosea 11.1. Again, Herod's wickedness, or, or Herod's wicked murder of innocent male children in Bethlehem, and the mourning it caused was predicted by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31.15. And then that prefigured in Israel's weeping over the Babylonian captivity, that prefigured this mourning in Bethlehem. And like the attempt to annihilate God's chosen people failed, that God preserved for himself a faithful remnant from his people, so this attempt on wiping out the anointed one failed as well. Finally, Matthew's general reference to the Christ being called a Nazarene in Matthew 2.23 seems to refer to a fulfillment of a theme in the Old Testament prophets. It says it there, plural, a theme in the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah would be despised. And in the New Testament, we find out this 
he's hailing from a place that in his day was proverbially, proverbially despised. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? John 1, 46. So what does Matthew want us to know? What's the point that I'm making? There is proof that Jesus is the Christ through clear evidence of fulfilling God's covenant promises in the scriptures and of fulfilling prophetic predictions and patterns and types again and again and again. And now see a second thing. Matthew also wants the reader to know that Jesus is the Christ by noting Christ's conception was as unique as his person. I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but Christ's conception was as unique as his person. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary king. There have been many men on the earth. There have been many kings even upon the earth. This is no ordinary king. The miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph couldn't be more clear in the text that we read. Before they came together in marital consummation, Jesus was found, or Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, verse 18. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, verse 20. The quotation also of the Old Testament, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, verse 23. And Joseph obeyed, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. That's a miraculous conception. Secondly, Matthew is is saying by this quotation of of Isaiah 7.14 that Jesus is literally God with us. The second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, became a man when he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. By the way, I want you to notice how I said that. When he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Godhead became a man. Jesus is truly unique. He is Christ the Lord. He is God with us. Paul says it like this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19. And then again, for in him, Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.19. And do you know what word Paul is using in Colossians? Remember the verb I told you, fulfill? Paul is now using a noun form of that word, pleroma, that we discussed. Jesus is the Christ, and he is the fullness of God revealed in human form. Filled to the brim. Like Paul, Matthew wants us to know Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan and he is the fullness of God revealed to us in human form. And thirdly, from what we read in the Nativity narrative, we see one thing more that Matthew wants us to know what God was doing in Christ's first coming. God's purpose for Christ's first advent. And the work that he would accomplish was to save his people from their sins. And when you hear that, don't hear Israel only. But if you belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ, that's you. He came to save his people from their sins. 
It's interesting to note the deepening of this purpose as, as messianic expectation would have been primarily for deliverance from subjugation to Israel's enemies and once again establishing the strength of the kingdom of Israel. But here, the thing from which we need most rescuing is the consequences of our own sin. So God's purpose for Christ's first advent is different than expected, but also better than expected. You thought you ordered a fish online, and instead you received a fishing pole and a fishing license. Different, but much better than expected. They thought Christ would come to free them from physical oppression and to make Israel great again under their permanent king, but instead he came to free all his people from the from the just consequences of their sins and the wrath of God against sin, and to expand those who are his to all tribes, tongues, and nations, and to prove that he is the rightful king over more than just Israel. He is Lord of all. Matthew wants us to know and to embrace that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew wants you to be overwhelmed by the truth of the arrival of God's Messiah, the fulfillment of promises and prophecies, the long-awaited one of promise. Matthew and all the New Testament authors want us to know that Jesus is truly unique. Jesus is the Christ, and he is Lord of all. And Matthew desires that the reader should, should see this and now keep reading Follow along and see just how Jesus would save his people from their sins and how we can be among those who worship him. So just so then, how does Matthew want us to respond? We're trying to wrap our heads around what does Matthew want us to know? How does Matthew want us also to respond as we've begun to discuss? Matthew wants us to respond like Joseph and like he himself, Matthew, has responded. Matthew wants us to submit to and worship Jesus as the Christ by faith. So respond in faith like Joseph, knowing that God is faithful to keep his promises and demonstrating faith by obedience. Joseph responds to God's promise with faith in God. But how do we know that Joseph believes the word of God? What's the obvious answer to that question? Go ahead, you can say, how do we know that Joseph believes God? Because he obeys. That's Joseph's proof to himself of his faith in God. That's how we know, is by Joseph's obedience. If God says this is the Messiah, I'm speaking like Joseph now, then this is the Messiah. If God says that I must bear the reproach of society around me in order to obey him, then I will obey him. By obediently taking Mary as his wife, Joseph, Joseph was exposing himself to public shame, to a stain against his good name. But public perception about whether or not we are righteous holds no weight compared to God's measurement of us. Now, this is not to say that according to the New Testament epistles, having a good testimony in the community isn't important. It is that we ought to be above reproach in any way that we can. But for our application, what Joseph does could be compared to our culture defining righteousness according to their own standards. 
calling what is good evil and evil good. And so they declare us backwards bigots because we are convinced that it is never our place to contradict the command of God. Our faith is in a faithful God who keeps his promises. And because he can always be trusted, we always obey him, even if we should suffer for it. A faith that believes the promise of God in Christ Jesus is a faith that obeys the command of God. Similarly, respond in faith like Matthew, following the Christ who saves sinners and learning to be like him and to teach what he commanded. When Matthew met Jesus, now Joseph is at risk of becoming a social pariah, but when Matthew met Jesus, he was already a social and religious outcast because of his chosen profession in Israel as a tax collector. Matthew was pretty much hated by everybody. And Matthew himself tells of the time that Jesus called him from his tax booth in Capernaum to follow him. Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, this was Matthew's own house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is having table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Maybe some of us are like these Pharisees, focused more on the external standards and ceremonies that people should, should see us and think that we're pretty good and proper people. But what takes place inside us in the secret moral conduct of our hearts because of what takes place inside of us, in the secret moral conduct of our hearts, we are all proven as unrighteous, as spiritually sick as these tax collectors and sinners with whom Jesus willingly shared table fellowship. He came to save these sinners, like you and me. So Matthew here gives us indication that whatever limited understanding he may have had early on, he ultimately followed Jesus by faith that this one could save sinners like him. The Gospels were written to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, Savior, and Lord, and that by faith in him, we can receive the full blessings of becoming his covenant people. But those who would receive such blessings must have genuine faith, a faith that follows and submits in obedience. Following Jesus means to believe that he alone saves sinners. And following Jesus means learning to become like Jesus. Think about what following Jesus as his disciple means, right? First to respond in faith to him that he saves sinners, and then following Jesus to be like him. You're becoming like your teacher. And you're telling others about your teacher, and you're learning to teach what your teacher taught.
In the process of being with Jesus during his ministry, Matthew and his fellow disciples would learn from Jesus how to be like him and how to teach what he taught. In fact, Matthew closes his gospel account after the resurrection with Jesus giving these final commissioning orders to his disciples. Do you know these words? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and he said to them in one of his resurrection appearances, this one in Galilee, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that the followers of Jesus learn to be like Jesus, to do what he commanded, and to teach others the same. I also want us to end our thoughts and our application this morning concerning Matthew's Advent message with something that arises from these final words of this gospel account. I am with you always to the end of the age. Where do we go from here? Living between two advents of the Christ, the Son of God. Do you realize that that is your place? Recipients of the first promise, awaiting the completion of the rest. If you will respond in faith to God's promise in the Lord Jesus, if you will repent of your sin, believing that Jesus alone accomplished what is necessary for salvation, and if you will worship Jesus and submit to him and follow him, then you will be ready to meet him, whether in death or at his second advent. Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? And if that's true of us, then we are already the saved sinners like Matthew, awaiting the completion of our salvation as we serve him on this earth. There, the, the word that we talked about for fulfill earlier is, is the pleroma word is used more often, but there's another word also that Luke and others will use that is teleosis to speak of fulfillment. And that's, that's the thing that is completed to perfection, that is the end, the telos. The completion is still coming. Christ fulfilled all that God planned for his first coming, and we look forward to yet further fulfillment at his second advent. Let's go back to our opening illustration and, and tweak it just a bit. When you place an order, you might get this message. Your order has been filled. Or your order has been completed, but maybe you haven't yet received it. The work of Christ's first advent is finished. Although his second advent is still to come, you have a proof of Christ's purchase. What is the proof of Christ's purchase that he has given to his people? The indwelling Holy Spirit of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have a proof of Christ's purchase.
And we indeed, indeed live between two advents. But even as the verses we saw at the end, we have God with us, even as Christ promised. And as we wait his second coming, we can know for certain, because of God's proven faithfulness, that everything prophesied, everything promised in God's perfect plan will be completed. It is also true that Christ's work is done, but ours not done. Christ's work is finished, but ours is not. So we must live intentionally like the Christ has come and is coming again. Take stock of your life. Take stock of your time and your treasure and your talents and ask yourself, what am I living most intentionally for? But even as we strive to serve him with all that we are and all that we have, we do so with great hope and joy and expectation of our king's return. You worship Jesus now, just wait. You worship Jesus now with, with a, a colorful and mixed people of various pedigree. Just you wait to see how amazing it's going to be when he comes again. Thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of people that he has made his own. And they will sing together, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Perhaps you already know this, but Isaac Watts' well-known hymn, Joy to the World, is actually a song about the second advent of Jesus. The culmination of God's fulfillment and our salvation you may notice it more specifically when we sing it together, which we're going to do now, particularly when it comes to the third verse. And yet, I still think it's an appropriate song for Christ's people when we celebrate his first advent because we confidently await his second coming with joyful expectation. Let's pray. God, we thank you that because of Jesus Christ and the work of your Holy Spirit to regenerate us so that we respond in faith to you, we thank you that you are making us a people for your own possession. We didn't deserve this. This is a gift that you bestow on us by your grace and, and for your own glory. And yet we are so grateful to be a part of it, to be to be caught up in what it is that you have been doing from the beginning and you will complete at the end. And we will celebrate together your glory and your goodness forever. We thank you for the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to his second advent with great anticipation for the fulfillment of everything that you have promised. And Lord, may we live during this age realizing all that you have promised to us in Christ Jesus. You have given us everything that we need for faith and for godliness. Help us to follow him with all that we are. 
and all that we have in the strength that you supply. In Christ's name we pray, amen. What an amazing privilege we have to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. So enjoy the Christmas season, but don't forget what God is about. And don't forget what you're supposed to be about. Let's pray again in closing. Father God, richly bless your people as we seek to go be the church of Jesus Christ as you disperse us from this place. Cause our hearts to submit to you as Lord. May we obey you with our thoughts, our words, our deeds, with our desires. We do not ask that you richly cause us to bear fruit for our sake, but for the sake of your own great name, the name of Jesus Christ, amen.